If you have your Bible still handy, would you please turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 to 29. Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 to 29. We're going to continue with our series on the book of Colossians, reading at verse 20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If you continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto also I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And may God the Holy Spirit grant us the understanding and wisdom of this passage before us. Last week we saw from our study of this particular epistle that it was written by the Apostle Paul about 60 to 64 AD while he was in prison in Rome. And it was written to the Christians at Colossae primarily to protect them from the false teachings and philosophies that were creeping into the local churches in that area at that time. There is the ever-present danger of error creeping into the church in all ages, and today is no exception. And the best way to expose error is through sound doctrine. And so the Apostle Paul, after he had greeted the believers in his first uh, few opening verses and prayed for them and for their spiritual well-being in verses 9 to 11 in the opening chapter, he proceeded to reaffirm sound doctrine that included the work 
of God the Father first. He reminded them that the work of salvation is a work of God, that God, the Father, and God the Son each have a definite role, albeit a different role. Paul tells them in verses 12 to 13 that our praises of thanksgiving should be directed to the Father because he has, number one, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. In other words, it is the Father who has made us fit or eligible for heaven. And secondly, the Father at the same time has delivered us all from the power of darkness. That is, he has rescued us from the control and dominion of the prince of this world, Satan. And thirdly, the Father has simultaneously translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, or putting it in other words, he has placed us into the sphere of care and control of his own Son. And all of these three particular acts are permanent and irreversible. And then the Apostle proceeds to direct their attention to the Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins in verse 14. And he gives them that beautiful picture of the Son and why he has the preeminence over all things in verses 15 to 19. Paul reveals to them the doctrines concerning the person of the Son. Number one, he is the very image of the invisible God, verse 15. Number two, he is the creator of all things, verse 16. Number three, he is the eternal Son of God because he is before all things, verse 17. Number four, he is the head of the church, verse 18. And finally, number five, Christ dwells, in Christ dwells the fullness of God, verse 19. So for these reasons, Christ has the preeminence because of his person. Then in the next few verses, Paul begins to expound the work of Christ, which also gives him preeminence or supremacy. And this is where our text begins today. Verses 20 to 23. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister." And so I've entitled this particular passage, The Mediation 
of Christ. Christ is preeminent not only because of his person, but he is preeminent also because of his work as mediator between God and man. It is the cross work of Calvary which is the focal point of salvation. Without it, there could never be any reconciliation made. God, who is holy, righteous, and just, demands justice. Sin had to be judged, and here it was judged at the cross. Who paid for that sin? Christ himself. And so the first point in this section I've entitled The Purpose of Christ. The Purpose of Christ. And so the purpose of Christ's coming to this earth was to save sinners, to redeem mankind, to reconcile sinful man to a holy and a just God. John the Baptist proclaimed in John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. The Apostle Peter himself also testified in Acts 4, verses 10 to 12, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And later in Acts 13, verses 38 to 39, the Apostle Paul, preaching in a synagogue at Antioch, reasons with the rulers of the synagogue on this very same topic. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him, referring to Jesus Christ, all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. And when the Lord Jesus himself was disputing with the Pharisees, and the Jews in John 5:39 to 40 he drew them to his person search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me and ye will not come to me that ye might have life or how more clearly could Jesus have put it than when he said in Luke 19:10 for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Or when he spoke in John 14, 6, those immortal words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Yes, writes Paul in Colossians 1, 20-23, the purpose of Christ's coming to this earth was to redeem lost souls, to redeem us unto himself, 
to reconcile all things unto himself. Before we knew Christ, we were enemies with God, separated from him by our sins. But then Christ, who died in our stead, took care of all those sins, and now he has reconciled us to God. That was the purpose, which now brings us to the second point in his mediatory work, which I've entitled The Provision of Christ. Christ was our provision. He was our sacrificial lamb. God the Father provided us with Christ as our Passover lamb. It was a promise made to Abraham way back in Genesis 22, verse 8, which was now literally fulfilled. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. The cross, too, was a provision by God, for it was only through the cross that Christ could have ever been made a curse for us. The only way that this perfect, sinless Lamb of God could be made a curse was by God's own declaration in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, and Galatians 3, verse 13. Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. And only through the shed blood of Jesus could the sins of the world be washed away. For we are all told in Hebrews 9.22, and without shedding of blood is no remission. But the blood of Jesus Christ was no ordinary blood. It was perfect blood, without stain, without sin. Romans 3.25 tells us, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. And then in Ephesians 1, 7, we read, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And then in Hebrews 9, 14, we are told how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And in 1 Peter 1.19, the theme of the blood is carried on to remind us that we were redeemed with the precious blood of of Christ. And although the Colossians had not the privilege and benefit of completed canon of Scripture, I would be remiss if I were to leave out Revelation 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Well, dearly beloved, aren't you thankful this morning for the blood of Christ? Do you believe in the purging power of his blood? Do you believe that it is able to wash away all your sins?
That is what the Apostle Paul was reminding the believers at Colossae, that it was through the blood of his cross, that it was in the body of his flesh through death, that our reconciliation was all made possible. God has always been our provider. Through God's provision, Christ came in the likeness of sinful man with a body that would later be nailed to a cross, sinless in every respect, a body that would be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, with blood that would be willingly shed, perfectly sinless blood, blood that would make the vilest sinner clean. But there is a third point here as well, and I've entitled it, The Product of Christ. The purpose of Christ's coming was to reconcile all things to himself. The provision of Christ was to be that sacrificial lamb of God to take away the sins of the world in order to reconcile all things to himself. And the product of Christ, or the result of all of this, was peace. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, faith in what? The finished work of Christ on Calvary's cross. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.13 tells us, But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. Now that there is peace between the redeemed of the Lord and God the Father, we can see the next point more clearly, which I've entitled, the plan of Christ, the plan of Christ. The plan is for Christ to present us, that is, all true believers, but in particular, as Paul is writing to the Colossians, the Colossian believers, to present them, verse 22, holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Isn't that a marvelous thought? Glory to God. But the proof of Christ, or the proof of genuine regeneration, or the proof of the new spiritual rebirth in the lives of the Colossian believers, is their walk. Verse 22. If ye continue in the faith, grounded and not settled and uh, excuse me, if ye continue in the faith, grounded and settled, 
and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven. This, points out Paul, is not a precondition to salvation. This does not earn or merit salvation, for salvation has always been a gift of God. For by grace are we saved, not of works, lest we should boast. But what the Apostle Paul is saying here, in a word of encouragement and caution at the same time, for he had not personally seen any of these believers at Colossae, this is what he is saying. If you manage to continue to the end in the faith that you profess, then that will be your proof that you were really saved, really redeemed, really regenerated. What a wonderful dissertation by Paul on the supremacy of our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He not only has the preeminency because of who he is, but also because of what he has done at Calvary. But that is not all. Paul now continues with another aspect and doctrine concerning Christ's work, and that is of the indwelling Christ, verses 26 to 27. Even the mystery which hath been hid from age and from generation, but now is made manifest to his saints, for whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And listen to this, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. What was that mystery once hid and now revealed? That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the Jews and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. That's what Ephesians 3, 6 tells us. Number one, these believers, if they were Gentiles, should also be joint heirs with the believing Jews of the heavenly inheritance. And number two, that they should be members of the same mystical body, the church. And number three, that they too, having been received into the church of Christ, should be interested in the gospel promises as well as the Jews. This was the great truth revealed to the Apostle Paul, that God would call the Gentiles to salvation by faith in Christ and without the works of the law. And so if any man be in Christ, he is now a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, we are told in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. 
Jew and Gentile believers together in one mystical body, the church, all united in a common bond, faith in Jesus Christ, and held together by the same bond, Christ in you. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the creator of all things, the one who is the very image of God, the very head of the church, the only mediator between God and man, the one who went to the cross of Calvary to make reconciliation for us possible, is also the Christ in you. He indwells all believers, keeping them by his own power, and someday he and he alone will present all of us, all true believers, Jew and Gentile alike, holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. What a Savior. And what a pastor's heart Paul had, always turning the eyes and the hearts of the believers to Christ, always lifting up the Savior, always revealing the truth of the riches of grace, always reminding believers of the power of the author and finisher of our faith. Whereas, in contrast, false teachers turn the eyes of the saints away from Christ, away from his work, so that they may draw disciples after themselves. But the true teacher, the true pastor, will say, He must increase, but I must decrease. Paul always preached the whole counsel of God, and his was always a twofold ministry, as we see in Colossians, the gospel and the church. Dr. Harry Ironside once put it this way, quote, The gospel is proclaimed to sinners and is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The church is taught to saints and builds them up in the faith as to their present privileges and corresponding responsibilities. End of quote. This brings us to the next section, which in particular focuses in on Paul's ministry. In verses 23, 24, 25, and verses 28, 29, he reveals to us the nature of his ministry. And so I've entitled this particular section, Paul's Ministry. After having demonstrated the role of God in our salvation, and having explained the doctrines concerning the person and works of our Savior in specific, he now draws our attention to his own labors and sufferings in making the gospel known. We should therefore notice the importance and the highest honor which the Apostle Paul attaches to the privilege of preaching the gospel of salvation to mankind. And the first point he makes here is that he, number one, Paul, was an authorized 
minister of the gospel. Paul was authorized, hand chosen by God himself, Colossians 1.25, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. And in Galatians 1.11-12, Paul writes, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after men. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And can we forget the account in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus and the Lord's statement to his servant Ananias referring to Paul in verses 15 to 16. The Lord says to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And the second point Paul makes concerning his ministry is in verse 24. Paul was a suffering minister of the gospel. Perhaps no other minister of the gospel has ever suffered for Christ as did Paul. No other has ever taken so much affliction in his own body for the Lord's name's sake. Often we read about those who greatly suffer physical and mental affliction and persecution for their religious convictions. But sometimes it is of their own doing rather than for the cause of Christ. But Paul's suffering were brought about because of his devotion to his Savior. In Acts 9.29, the Apostle Paul was persecuted by the Jews. In Acts 14.18-19, he was stoned and left for dead at Lystra. In Acts 16, he was scourged and thrown into prison at Philippi. In Acts 21-27, he was seized at Jerusalem by the Jews and arrested to be tried again. And then in Acts 27, 14-44, he was shipwrecked while on his way to Rome as a prisoner to be tried for his testimony where he was finally executed for Christ, his Savior. Yes, Paul was truly a suffering minister of the gospel. But then we see in verses 26-27 of Colossians 1 that Paul expounded the fullness of the gospel which was revealed to him by Christ. There were the deep truths, the mysteries that had been hidden in the ages past but now had been made manifest. The riches of grace, the truths, the doctrines of the church, so the third thing we notice about Paul's ministry is that Paul was a complete minister of the gospel. Regardless of the cost, Paul always declared the full counsel of God. He never withheld the unpleasant aspects of the message. 
he never ceased to warn the church of God about false teachers who would come among them and try to subvert them and pervert the truth. And how can we ever forget that very moving scene in Acts 20, verses 36 to 38, where the Apostle Paul met with the Ephesian elders and warned them of grievous wolves entering the flock to destroy them, to speak perverse things, and to draw away disciples after them. In verse 31, Paul warns, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn every one night and day with tears. And when he had thus spoken, he kneeled down and prayed with them all. And they all wept sore and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they should see his face no more. And they accompanied him onto the ship. Yes, Paul was a complete minister. He preached the judgment and salvation of Jesus Christ to all. And he preached the whole counsel of God in truth and in love. But that is not all. There is a fourth aspect to his ministry. Paul was also a faithful minister of the gospel. He would never water down the truth to make it more suitable to the sinner, as often is the custom today. Neither would he withhold the precious gems of the riches of grace from any of the flock, even from those whom he himself did not have a personal part in leading to the Lord. There was never any envy or jealousy of the brethren in Paul. And oh, how that can ruin a testimony for Christ when two or three brethren, because of envy or jealousy of each other, prevent the testimony of Christ from going forth. Nothing can destroy a local assembly as quickly as this. But Paul was sold out to the cause of Christ, and he was so crucified with his Savior that the love of the Savior was able to fully abound in the heart of this dear saint. Paul counted all things worthless and loss, as he reveals in Philippians 3.8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. For Paul, Christ was so important, so preeminent, that nothing else could steal his joy of him away. And this is what the Apostle Paul wanted to give the Colossian believers, the joy of the Lord. If they had that, then nothing else, no other rituals, no other philosophies could ever steal that joy away. For therein lies our strength in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so at this stage, Paul, having addressed the Colossian believers as saints and brethren, 
and having acknowledged their fruits and appealed for them in his daily prayers, he presents the doctrinal truths of the Savior's nature, deity, and works, giving him all the preeminence in all things. And then he proceeds to remind the believers of his personal commitment both to the Savior and to mankind in the preaching of the gospel faithfully. Now he will be able to lead into the purpose of the writing of this letter to warn them of certain false teaching that they may have been and are being exposed to. And so, Lord willing, we'll try and deal with that in our next session uh, at some future aspect. But now, as always, before I step down from this platform, I must ask you this uh, solemn question. Are you saved? Have you trusted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ shed for you and me on Calvary's cross? For it, and it alone, is able to cleanse you from all of your sins. If you haven't done so, would you do so now while there is still yet time? He will forgive all who come to him in genuine faith and not refuse any. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved.